So, new series starting today. And this is going to be a a bit unusual. I am somebody who feels much more comfortable usually just picking a book of the Bible and going verse by verse. Um, That to me, um, while it requires a tremendous amount of work, um, is the easiest because it just tells me where I got to go and what I got to say. It's cheating, as Andy Stanley said. Um, When it comes to topicals, though, those are much more difficult because instead of studying six verses or eight verses and then doing some cross-referencing, what you end up having to do is studying a million things and then you've got to sort of figure out how to take and call all that down, put it into something that's manageable and be able to teach on it. So I'll be real frank and say this is probably the most uncomfortable I've been in a while. Um, Well, with that said, there's value in doing topical series and other things because it allows you to cover a lot of ground. And so I got to thinking a while ago about what would we do next. And you know that I I love the Old Testament. Um, Always have loved the Old Testament. And part of the reason for that is because I love the historicity of it and, and other things. But I also believe that... Everything we find in the Old Testament, just as Paul says, is a a tutor to lead us to Christ, which means when it's two-thirds of our Bible, we ought to spend time in it. And while many today are abandoning the Old Testament and saying it's unimportant, in fact, even within evangelical circles, there's a move not now to say that the Old Testament isn't even messianic, which is just bizarre to me because it's foundational. And it's foundational to the gospel. One of the things I love about the Answers in Genesis ministry is they got it right. They're not really a young earth creationist ministry as much as they are a foundational ministry on understanding that the authority of God's word rests on how we look at the Old Testament, specifically how we look at Genesis and the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so it becomes the foundation for the gospel. So we're going to... Do that for the next uh, seven weeks, I believe. We're going to look at the events of the first 11 chapters of Genesis and see how the gospel is reflected in those things. So, it's, it's not going to be as technical in some respects, meaning it isn't going to be a verse-by-verse study maybe of, you know, like I'll be looking at Genesis 1 and 2 today. It's not going to be a super technical look at that. It's going to be more philosophical and theological. We'll be in the text, but you might have a lot of things that aren't answered. Because, again, it's not going to be kind of explaining everything that's there, but rather using those texts to sort of reflect that on the gospel. And so we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 today. And let me start with this. Here at Renew, we believe that the events in the book of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, are real, literal, historical, chronological events. And all of those are important. We believe that they're real. We believe that they're literal events. We believe that they're chronological. They're laid down in a chronological order. We believe they're historical events. They're not allegorical. They're not made up. So what we see there is is history laid out for us. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We believe he did that in six literal days. We believe that there's a literal Adam and a literal, literal Eve that were created as special beings, specifically by the Lord. We don't believe that... They came from apes or were part of evolution or as some have tried to argue that they were God's second creation, that somehow there were two creations with a giant gap in between there. We don't believe that. We believe in a literal fall. We believe in a literal universal flood. We believe in Noah. We believe the ark. In fact, we know it exists because we see it down in Kentucky. 
<laughs> we believe in the Tower of Babel. We take all of this to be real, literal, historical, chronological events. No question about that. And one of the reasons we do is because we believe in the inerrancy, the infallibility, the authority, and the trustworthiness of God's Word. But there's another reason we believe those things are real, and it's because they are the foundation of everything we believe. It's the foundation of the gospel. It's the foundation of of every one of the doctrines that we hold dear to us. I found some interesting statistics on this. There's over a hundred references or allusions to the events recorded in the book of Genesis alone. Again, over a hundred references or allusions to what we find in the book of Genesis in the New Testament. Now here's what's interesting about that. Over half of those, 60 of them, come from just the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So over half of those, 60 of them, come from just the 11 chapters, first 11 chapters of Genesis. Jesus, along with every New Testament author except for James, references an event from Genesis 1-11. through Every single author in Jesus himself, again, except for James. I don't know what James' problem was. In one of his most important sermons, Paul, with one of his largest audiences, which is before the Areopagus in Athens, Acts chapter 17, Paul actually began his teaching on the gospel to the Gentiles there by starting in Genesis chapter 1. Get this. There are only seven New Testament books that do not contain a reference to an event in Genesis 1-11. through There's only seven New Testament books that don't reference Genesis 1-11. through The other 20 all reference Genesis 1-11. through So to say that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are critical to the Gospel and the other doctrines we hold dear, I wish there was a way to say that stronger. That almost doesn't do it justice to say, well, it's critical. Because that's certainly not the way the New Testament authors saw those first 11 chapters. They are critical, beyond critical, to our understanding of the gospel and the doctrines that we hold dear. And so that's partly why, for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at these 11 chapters. And we're going to reflect on a number of things as we, as we do that. Some of the events, like Genesis 1 and 2, are going to provide the basis, the reason for the gospel. Other events, maybe like the fall and that, are going to share the need for the gospel. Other events, like Cain and Abel, we're going to talk about the conflict between man and God and why we see some of the things we see in our world today. We're going to see things like the flood and the Tower of Babel explaining the different aspects of the gospel, like judgment, grace, forgiveness, salvation. Some of these things we look at are even going to foreshadow or hint at or even reveal, in some respects, the gospel to us. And so that's going to be our attempt for the next seven weeks. I'll be real honest. I have personally never heard a series like this before. I'm sure others have maybe done something like it before. Um, But we are treading in uncharted territory here, so we're going to ask for some of your grace and mercy towards us as well as we do this. I'm hoping that we will be able to communicate effectively and uh, drive home what we're really trying to accomplish, which is that when you go back and you look at Genesis 1-11, through that you just don't see historical things or nice little stories, that what you ultimately will see in it is a reflection of the Gospel. Because I believe that's what the Lord's intent was for us. 
So, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 today. So if you go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, the first two chapters of the Bible, it's fitting that the Lord started everything right there. But Genesis chapter 1 and 2, I'm going to make this statement. This is your first point for your outline. Genesis 1 and 2 establishes the basis for the gospel. The basis for the gospel. Now I'm defining basis here as the justification or the reasoning behind something. Let me pose a question for you, and this is something I thought of. Why would God go to such drastic lengths or drastic measures to redeem us? Think about this for a moment. You're the almighty God of the universe, and somehow, for some reason, you think that you need to send your son down to earth, you leave the heavenly realm, you send, send him to earth, where he will be taking on human flesh, giving up the use of some of his attributes, subjecting himself to the limitations of human life, to be born as a baby, have to then rely on the care of human adults and parents, learn obedience in some respects, what the scripture tells us, to then grow up and be mocked, ridiculed, mistreated, ultimately beaten, bruised, crucified, hung on a cross, and killed. That is a pretty drastic thing. Is it not? Why in the world would the God of the universe think that it was worth it to do that for us? Do you ever wonder that? Because that is a drastic thing to do. I think part of the reason for that can be found in something that Jesus said. Turn to John chapter seventeen or John chapter three. John chapter three. Verses 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. So what we learn here is that the reason God did what he did was because he loves the world. And that reference there isn't just to the physical world, but more specifically us. That God loved us so much that it was worth doing what he did. The question is, why though? Why would God love us so much? Well, Jesus also gives us the answer to that question in Matthew chapter 6. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We always think of this passage as a passage about worry, but there's something Jesus says here that gives us a clue as to why God loved us so much, why he would do what he did. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, we read this. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now look at this. This is key. Are you not worth much more than they? Think about that for a moment. I was reading an article this morning about the Biden administration posting something on the White House website, specifically related to a study that was commissioned by the administration to study how we might be able to block the sun to prevent global warming. There's different terms for it. 
But the idea would be block the sunlight from coming in. And one of the reasons they commissioned this study is because it's the fastest way they claim to cool the earth down. Now, if you've ever seen the movie or the TV series, Snowpiercer, it's been tried before. <laughs> the movie Snowpiercer, the TV series on TNN, or TNT, I think it is. Um, it's all about doing just that. They stick these particles in the, in the atmosphere, they cool the earth down, and next thing you know, we're in another ice age. It wipes out humanity, and there's only a few left that are on a train that travels all over the world and has to keep moving with a perpetual engine to keep humans alive. So they need to see the movie because it didn't end well. All right? Jesus himself said that we are the most important, most significant, the most valuable of all of God's creation. He says that here. He says, you're worth more than they, aren't you? Now, the reason I mentioned the global warming thing is because it is very popular and common among those who are proponents of that, that mankind is a scourge on the earth. We are not only no better than the animals, we are in fact not worth as much as they. Or is it them? We're a scourge. We should depopulate. We should limit people from having babies. We talked to Bill Gates about that and others. The plan is to slow down man's growth because we're destroying this planet. It's much more valuable and much more important than we are, according to these people. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said we're more important. David recognized this. Turn to Psalm chapter 8. Think about what David said when he wrote Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, it reads like this. I'll give you a second to get there. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. But then look at this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. David's looking up into the heavens. He's seeing God's magnificent creation. And he says, wow, look at this. And then he says, verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him? In other words, why do you even think about mankind in comparison to your universe? We're going to be heading down to the ark next week and one of the things I, I, we're going to go to the Creation Museum the second day on Tuesday and one of the things I love about the Creation Museum is their planetarium show and they do this amazing show where um, you're sitting back in these seats and looking up at the dome ceiling and they start at planet Earth and they go out and they just keep going out further and further and they take us out as far as the known universe and then they, in the last I think I think they do that over the course of 20 minutes or so and then the last two minutes they just zoom all the way back in right there to this little tiny blue dot this insignificant blue dot when you think about it we're the most important part of all of God's creation there's nothing like us anywhere else and David says when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have ordained what is man that you even take thought of him and the son of man that you even take it a step further and care for him. So it goes from, why do you even think about us, Lord, to why do you care about us? Why do you care for us? Then he says this, Yet you have made him a little lower than God 
and you crown him with glory and majesty. Those are words reserved for God. But he crowns us with glory and majesty. We are made in his image, made to reflect him. You make him rule over the works of your hands. He's given us responsibility to care for what he's created, to rule over it. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea, you have put us, Lord, man, over that. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David recognized that mankind is his... Dustin reminded me this week, the apple of God's eye were the most important aspect of his creation. I'm going to propose that that is exactly what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. It tells us something about mankind. And it, in some respects, is easy to overlook. So turn back to Genesis 1. I'm going to read this for us, and then we're going to come back and look at parts of it here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the, of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and gathering of the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of their kind, and trees bearing fruit and seed or with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the night from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its own kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them. 
God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. God saw that all that he had made and behold it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We'll stop there. When you look at this story of Genesis chapter 1 one of the things that really stands out about it is like every good story there's a climax to it. And what do you suppose the climax of Genesis 1 is? It happens in verse 26. Everything in Genesis 1 points to that. The whole purpose of everything up to that point is to lead us toward verse 26. We see that through a number of things within the text. In fact, when you examine this text in the Hebrew, I'm convinced that there are a number of things even within the Hebrew text that sort of point to it grammatically. That what we see is God is basically taking us toward Genesis chapter 6. And there's a number of things that we can see there. You notice that there's this pattern that's used, let there be, or let us, or let us, or let, or let there be, or let the light this or that. And you see this certain pattern where that phrase is repeated, but then all of a sudden you get to verse 26, and that changes to let us make. There's a change in the wording that's used from let there be, and similar phrases to let us make. You see the change from God, it's actually in the plural in the Hebrew, but some refer to it as a plural of majesty or other things. That's why we translate it as God, even though the word is God's. But it's translated as God, but it moves then to this plural, a genuine, real plural of us. Some believe that's a reference to the Trinity or maybe angelic beings. I believe it is a reference to the Trinity. Because it says, let us make God, or make man in our image. We weren't made in the image of angels. We were made in the image of God. So I believe that is a reference to the Trinity. So you have that change as well. You've got the mention of the sexes for the first time when it comes to mankind. And the roles we'll see in verse, or chapter 2. It says that we're made in God's image. That's different than every other thing that God had created. We see the change from it was good to adding it was very good. And that only happens after the creation of mankind. We also see that chapter 2 then is an expansion of verses 26 to the end of the chapter. And so what you see is that clearly in the first two chapters, the climax of all that God does here is the creation of mankind. And there's all these little clues and there's actually additional clues as well in the text that suggest the whole point of Genesis chapter 1 isn't, look at all the amazing things God created, but... Look how God created mankind. That's the point of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He even goes on to say that the earth would be ruled by mankind. Not something he shared with the other animals. So we see all of these clues within this. There's something else interesting that happens here which also leads me to suspect that the whole point of Genesis 1 has more to do about God's creation of man than it does anything else. You notice how it started out, the earth was formless and void? It's interesting, there's a lot of debate over that phrase. 
It's what's referred to basically in, in Hebrew as a hendiadis. I think that's how you pronounce it if Matt can correct me. I had professors that pronounced it six different ways, but I believe it's hendiadis. It's basically where you take two independent words, you put them together with the word and, and instead of the phrase representing each one of those by itself, it basically comes up with sort of a, a singular concept or idea. So rather than this meaning that the earth had no form, it clearly did, it was a ball covered by water, <laughs> But so rather than it being formless and rather than it just simply being empty, this idea of formless and void really doesn't mean that it was, didn't have a form, but rather probably that it was a barren wasteland or it was sort of worthless emptiness. And here's what's interesting about this. The exact phrase is only used one other time. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 26. A few verses there, but... Jeremiah uses it to describe the land of Israel that was supposed to be inhibited by Israel, but their enemies had basically wiped them out, and he says, it is formless and void. Does he mean that the land didn't have form? No, what he meant was, it was supposed to be inhabited, but now it's like this barren wasteland. It's not inhabited. That's a problem. And so, what we find here is, I believe... That when the Lord says that the earth was formless and void, what he was referencing was primarily this. That it's supposed to be inhabited, but it hadn't been inhabited yet. And so what it does is it sets up a problem to be solved. It's basically a literary device that says, here's the earth, it's formless and void. That's not the way God intended it. That's how it started. But now he's going to tell us how it became inhabited. And the solution, it's, it's actually solved in verses 26 and following. In fact, Isaiah uses a similar phrase or a similar language. It's not exactly the same, but he specifically says in Isaiah 45 that the earth was designed specifically to be inhabited not just by living things, but specifically by mankind. So the reason God created the earth wasn't just to glorify himself. He created the earth because he needed a place to put us. And that's something else that you see in the text here as we walk through it. I had this great conversation with Kimberly last night. It lasted for, I think, about an hour and a half to two hours of texting. I swore I was going to get cramps. At one point, I haven't sure it was Dr. Long this morning, at one point I told Kimberly, I said, she kept saying, oh, I only have one more question, I promise. And then she'd ask another question. And then there's another question. And I'm trying to text her back. You know, but I'm also voice texting. So she says, well, Dad, that's what voice texting is for. You know, because I said, my fingers are getting cramps, honey. So then she said, you know, Dad, that's what voice texting is. I said, what, get a cramp in my tongue? And she's like, look, Dad, I spend all day talking and I'm doing fine. It's because you get a lot more practice at it. So, the whole conversation, she was going through parts of Genesis, and she had all these questions, and she had these great questions about Genesis chapter 1, about, well, why did God do it in the order that he did? Why didn't he just create everything in one day? Why didn't he create all the living things just on day 6? Why did he create some of the fish and stuff on day 5, and then wait for the animals? Why, 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 why? And so one of the things I pointed out to her is I said, you notice, honey, that there's a number of things in this text that suggests to us that what God was doing was he was preparing his creation to support not just life, but human life. And you know how we know that? Because some of the things that God does here, if you think about this, the very first thing he does is he creates the earth that's surrounded by water. Man cannot live there. It can't sustain any light. So what? Life. What's the very first thing he does? He creates light, okay, which is necessary for human existence. doesn't mean the sun was created yet. Light doesn't have to have the sun. But God created light. 
Okay? But then he separates the waters. So now you have what he says are the heavens. He creates the heavens, okay? which is probably the atmosphere. And what is the atmosphere necessary for? We're the only planet that we know of that has an atmosphere that allows us to breathe. It's got oxygen in it, nitrogen, and other things. But an, an atmosphere is necessary for life. We can't go live on the moon without artificial means to breathe and other things, right? So we need an atmosphere to live. And then we see that he, then the very next thing is he, he creates dry land. In other words, separates the waters enough to where he would dry land. Why? Because obviously for us to be able to live, we need a place to live. We're not like fish. So he creates the land. But then he also does things like the vegetation, which is necessary for food. He even creates the sun, moon, and stars. And he tells us that they're foretelling of times and seasons. But one of the words that's used there is the same word used for, for basically um, religious holidays in the Old Testament. That's how the Jews knew when to celebrate certain things was based on planetary objects. They didn't have their little clocks and calendars like we do today necessarily. I did this great thing when I was, when I was teaching on this, the more minute details of this about how up until not too long ago, we still used the sun, moon, stars, etc. to plot uh, how we did lines for states and highways and roads and everything else. We still relied upon those things. In fact, some still do today to lay out geographic markers and other things. We still rely on the planetary objects. And the idea that within that, one of the words suggests that it's used for planning of holidays wouldn't be for the animals, it would be for who? us and so even the creation of the sun moon and stars had a human purpose in it one of the types of animals mentioned here are domesticated animals they need to be cared for which means when God created those animals he anticipated somebody to care for them the same thing with some types of fruit were designed to provide for us some types of fruit were designed for animals why would God create that type of fruit if it wasn't anticipating that he would put man so he did that first so there's much more in the text, but what we begin to see in this is that the way that God lays out even the order of creation, all of it looks like God is preparing for one thing, putting everything in place that's necessary in order for him to put man on the planet. So in many respects, what we see in Genesis 1 is God preparing us a place to live. And we see that throughout this text. So I explained that to Kimberly that, that God sure could have sneezed and it all came into existence in one moment. But I think what he was trying to do is to give us details so that we could look at the text and go, look at what God did and it's all about us. Yes, it's about his glory, but what he's telling us is, I did all this to prepare for one primary thing. The cream of my creation. Those who would bear my image. And so it's more than just God saying, look at what I can do. It's, no, look at what I did for you. And I believe that that's why God took six days to do it. Didn't just poof, because he could have, right? It's a teaching tool for us that we might see our value and our place in his creation. The other thing that's really interesting is if you look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, let's just look at the first few verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts... By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So God's pretty much done, right? 
But then look at this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. This is an expansion of the creation of man. When God created them, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. It essentially means that it didn't start to grow yet. And no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. What do we learn from that? After God created everything... In some respects, he withheld its ability to grow and do what he designed it to do until what? Until there was man who could cultivate the ground. In other words, he created all of this, but he sort of put the brakes on its ability to reproduce and to grow until he put man on. Why? Because man is to govern God's creation. Do you ever wonder, here's another thought, do you ever wonder why God wiped out the whole entire earth, including all of the animals? It does say that the the, the earth was filled with violence, everything was filled with violence, but also, if he's going to wipe out man and basically save Noah and his family, and their job is to care for God's creation, then it makes sense that God would wipe out creation and in some respects start from scratch as well a much smaller animal base, everything else. Why? Because our job is to govern God's creation. And so, what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is why God went to such great measures. He created us as the most important, the most beloved part of his creation. The primary purpose of the Bible is to reveal God and make him known. I would argue that the main purpose of Genesis is to reveal the origin and the history of our relationship to God. Let me say that again. I believe the purpose of the book of Genesis is to tell us about the origin, not just of us, but our relationship with God. Think about this. Genesis 1 and 2 is the history of our creation and our original relationship with God in a perfect world. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But then in Genesis 3 through 5, we see the fall and we see the battle between Cain and Abel. That's the history of our broken relationship with God. It explains how this perfect relationship was broken, but it also explains how God responded to us in our sinful state and even introduces us to God's promise to fix that relationship. So that's what we find in Genesis 3 through 5. When you look at Genesis chapter 6 through 10, which is deal, deals with the flood, One of the things we learned from that, that's the history of the catastrophic creation-wide consequences of sin and how sin progresses from the garden forward as mankind pushes further and further away from that garden and further and further away from God. So it tells us that history. How did we get here from there? What explains the conflict we see in the world? What explains sin, disease, death? It's not just Genesis 3. It's what we see progressing towards the flood. Genesis 11 is the history of our further rebellion against God. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. Even after the flood, even after God sort of starts all over, what do we do? A dog returns to its vomit. We go back to sin. And what we see in that is God basically helps us by scattering us putting a cap in some respects on our ability to to progress towards sin, slowed it down. It's an act of mercy and grace. It also explains why we've got all the different continents and why we have all the different, we'll call them races. There's only one race, the human race. But we have different flavors and colors. That explains why. So it's a history of how we got where we're at. Lastly, Genesis 12 through 50 
is a history of God's plan to rescue and redeem us through Israel and through his redemptive plan. So everything in the book of Genesis is a history about our relationship with God. That's his purpose. It's not just designed by by God or written by Moses to give us these neat little stories, neat little historical things. It's all about how did we get from there to how did we get to what we see today with this broken relationship and a God who has reached down into human history to fix what we broke. And when we think about that, that's why it's the basis, the reason for the gospel. That's why God was willing to take such drastic matters to save us, to put his own son on the cross, for Jesus to suffer the way that he did, for God to say, I loved you so much because you're more valuable than everything else that I've created that it was worth me doing what I did, sending my son Jesus to suffer life as a human, to suffer all that he did, and to ultimately die on the cross for you. It's all grounded here in the book of Genesis. We are not a scourge to the earth. We are the most important part, the most beloved part of God's creation. Now, that was the first point. Second two will be much shorter. Here's the really cool thing about all this. If that's not cool enough, did you know that God's plan for the gospel was already in place before he created anything? Did you know that God's plan of redemption started before Genesis 1-1? The gospel was not an afterthought. It wasn't a reaction by God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Corinthians chapter 2 I'm going to start at verse 1 Paul says and when I came to you brethren I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God which means he didn't rely on a skillful oration he says for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified that's the gospel Paul said I didn't come to you with fancy words or great rhetoric or skills I came to you just with the truth of the gospel I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in, deter- in demonstration of the spirit and the power of the power, so that your faith would not rest on wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Look at this, though. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, that's the gospel, which God, and look at this, predestined before the ages of our, to our glory. That phrase, predestined before the ages, is a reference to before time. And so what Paul says is this mystery, this gospel, was something that God predestined, predetermined is another way to say that, before the ages started, before creation ever came about. The wisdom with, or which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for they had, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it was written, things which eye has not seen or ear has not heard, and which 
has not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. When did God prepare the gospel? When did he prepare this message? Paul tells us. Before the ages. Before God ever breathed out Genesis 1.1. What this means is that in order to view Genesis 1 and 2 properly, we need to view those things in the context of the gospel. God does everything with a purpose. And this included creating us even though he knew we would sin and fall. There's this movement referred to as the openness of God. It's called openness theology or openness of God theology. I believe it started out of Bethel Seminary out of Minneapolis or Minnesota. What it actually teaches is that God did not know everything beforehand. So God didn't know that we would fall. And that when he learned that we had fell, he immediately came up with a plan to try to fix what had broken. But that's not the God that we see in the Bible. We just learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that God had predetermined, prepared the gospel before he ever created 1-1, which which, says one, which means God knew we would fall. He wasn't caught off guard. He didn't have to come up with plan B. He wasn't a reactionary. Oh, crud, now I've got to figure out a way to fix this. Satan got the best of me here. Darn it, Eve, you threw off my plan. I don't fully claim to understand all of this. It's a bit unsettling in mind. (laughs) But God knew that we would sin. Still created us. Still made us the most important part of his creation. Loved us more than all of the rest of his creation, knowing that we would turn our back on him. And because he knew that, he had a plan in place to fix it before he ever breathed the first item of creation. Isn't that a bit mind-blowing? Isn't that a bit numbing to the senses? And if God did that, then he would ultimately go to the greatest lengths and measure to save us. All planned beforehand. Dustin and I have joked around about this fancy theological phrase referred to as lapsarianism and there's different forms of it super and supra and all that and what it has to do with is it tries to explain the order in which God thought about what he was going to do before creation did God first think about creating then think about man then think about the fall then think about a way to fix it or did he first think about man then about creation then about the fall or did he first think about the we debate this at ad nauseum in seminary and the reality of it is there's no way to know the order that God thought of anything But the reality of it is, God did think, did plan. Everything he does is with a purpose. And that included the gospel. Isn't that mind-numbing? But it tells you something about his love for us. And it becomes the basis for the gospel. Now, on to point three. I promised you that one would be a little shorter. If all of this is not cool enough, that God thought about the gospel, established the gospel, he and Jesus sat down and said, here's the plan. I'm going to create Jesus, but here's what you're going to need to do. And Jesus said, I'm willing to do it. I'm assuming that's how the conversation went. If that isn't cool enough, how about something that is a little more close to home? Those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ were even chosen by God for salvation before creation so not only was the gospel put in place but the Bible tells us that you and I 
were chosen for salvation by God before Genesis 1.1. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. That almost gives, in fact it does, it gives me goosebumps. Ephesians chapter 1, listen to this. Ephesians 1, go to verses 3 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, what? Chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. Did you catch that? He chose us, believers in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. When? So that we are wise, so that we might be holy and blameless. And when did he do this? Before the foundation of the world. It's like Glenn Beck used to say, wrap my head with duct tape to prevent it from exploding. I want you to jump into chapter 2. What we find in the rest of chapter 1 is all the things that God has done for us. Things like um, uh, adopting us as children, giving us an inheritance, making us righteous, forgiving us for our sins. You can read through that on your own, but it's one thing after another. All the amazing things that God has done for us to save us is what we find in chapter 1. It's... filled with theology and, and encouragement. And it all takes us up to chapter 2, verse 8. And listen to this. It's a verse you're familiar with, but you might not have heard it in this light. Chapter 2, after, after he lays out all the things that Christ did, the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and you walked in those things and he saved us and he did all these amazing things for us, you come to this, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that you should walk in them. That verse is always interpreted as, God created us to do good works. Okay? I do not believe that is an accurate translation. A better translation of that is, that we were created on behalf of good works. And here's my reasoning, and I'm not alone in this. The first one that opened my eyes to this was Ed DeZago. Those of you that know Ed DeZago know that he is a brilliant theologian. He is a brilliant Greek scholar. Um, he knows his stuff. He's taught at multiple seminaries. Um, he's in the process now of working on a, on a systematic theology, four-volume systematic theology. Just the outline is 800 pages long. Okay? One of the most... He would have put to shame some of my own seminary professors at Grace. And I had some great professors. Okay? But he's humble and gracious. He and I were meeting one night. He walked in. He said, I want to show you something, Mike. And he put this verse on the board. He wrote it in the Greek. At the time, I was a little bit better at sight reading Greek. I recognized it. And he said, Why is this phrase translated as created for good works? That preposition, the word that's used there in the Greek, never means for I went, well, that is interesting. You're right. I'm looking at it. And he proceeded to walk me through and he's like, look, out of the seven different primary lexicons which tell us how words are used, not just their meaning, but their usage, he said, not a single one out of all seven of these give a single example where that means for. However, in almost every specific example where that preposition is used with another specific form of a word, I can... I won't get into details on that, but the way you determine what a preposition means is the case that the word is in that follows it. And he said, 
Every single time this preposition is used, with that particular case, it always means on behalf of, across the board. But every English translation translates this as, we were created for good works rather than on behalf of good works. Here's why that's important. Because the question is, are we created to do good works or for good works, or were we created, saved, on behalf of the good works that God has done. Chapter 1 is all the good works that God has done to save us. And so Ed's proposal to me that day was, what Paul is really saying is, here's all the amazing good works that God has done to save us, and we were created, we were first saved by those works, but we're, now we are created to walk in those works that God has done. Now, he wasn't saying that we're not supposed to do good works. What he was getting at is, technically, what is it really saying? He actually did a paper on this and presented it at ETS, which is the premier theological convention every year where people, geeks like him, go and present stuff like, hey, I just spent six years studying one Greek word and here's what it means, and they all geek out about stuff like that. He actually presented it there and the reaction, from what I've been told, was a lot of, a lot of heads going, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty clear. Now you might ask, why is this translated differently here? Sometimes we get in these things where something is translated a certain way and it's just remembered that way and it just continues to be translated that way. Nobody challenges it, nobody questions it. And so sometimes they'll put it in a little note here and there. Um, there's any kinds of reasons why that's done. And you'll see that sometimes a more modern translation. I've been using the, the Legacy Standard Bible at home for study. It's an update to the New American Standard. And there are a couple of things that they do where they're like, you know, it's about time we probably reflect this a little differently because most scholars agree that it should be. And so they'll, they'll tweak it a little bit. I think Ed was right on this. What's my point with this? We were chosen before the foundations of the world for salvation and Ephesians 1 makes that very, very clear. It said God did all the amazing work for us and as a result of those works, on behalf of those good works, He saved us and we now walk in those good works. We walk in sanctification. We walk in justification. We walk in redemption. We walk in the inheritance. We walk in all of those good works that God has done. This is what the Bible refers to as predestination. Now, we can get into the debate. Are you a three-point Calvinist, a four-point Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist, or a 3.786 Calvinist? We can get into that, the whole debate about predestination and free will, but the reality of it is they are both true. We don't like that tension. How can they be true? Either God chose me or I chose him. And I would say, no, the Bible says that God chose you and you chose God. Figure it out. (laughs) Okay? There are some things we just can't understand. One of the best examples I've ever seen of this is a, a guy who's kind of walking along. He's blind. He can't see where he's going. He doesn't know that there's a door down the way that he needs to go through to be saved. And so he's beating his little cane and he's kind of clicking the wall and he's walking. And right above that door it says, Come, all who are weary. Just make it to the door. Come. Anybody can come. Anybody can come. Just walk through the door. All he can see is that sign, that, or he can't really see it, but all that is seen on this side of the door is, come all who are weary, which is what? An invitation. Anybody can come walk through this door. But the moment he walks through that door, the other side of the door says, chosen before the foundation of the world. 
In other words, he can't see that side of it before he's saved. He can only see that side after he's saved. So my point is this. All of the passages that say that we have to choose the Lord, they're, they're really geared towards unbelievers. Every unbeliever can choose. That's where we ought to use those passages. The come all who are weary is for the unsaved. And everybody can come. But once we come and we walk through, we understand a new reality. I was chosen. That's only for believers. Which means you can't go to an unbeliever and say, well, you were either chosen or you're not chosen. That determines your salvation. That's the wrong passage. We don't use the predestination passages to say that God elected some and not others and somehow you might be saved and you might not be saved and if you weren't chosen, if you weren't elected, you can't get saved because it's not up to you. It's all So that's the hyper-Calvinist, the hyper-extreme that it's all about that, all about election. So we just have to live with the tension. But that is what the Bible calls predestination. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to try to finish this up here. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, when did he know them? Before the foundations of the world. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, he chose them to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he predetermined, their salvation. He also called them. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What's interesting about that is that word glorified is in the aorist tense, which presents itself as having already been accomplished. doesn't mean you were really glorified yet. It just means that it is so cut and carved in stone that it will happen. We will be glorified. Why? Because he chose us before the foundation of the world. Let's wrap this up. Genesis 1 and 2, along with the rest of the Bible, reveal that we are the most significant, the most important, the most beloved of all of God's creation. Genesis 1 and 2 explains that it's not just the history of creation that's involved there, but it reveals the basis for the gospel. It tells us why God did what he did. We're unique among God's creations. He made us in his image. He created the world to, to be a place for us to inhabit. It was formless and void initially, because we weren't there yet. And Genesis 1 and 2 tells us how God then filled that empty and void creation. If you remember in Genesis 3, that He actually walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He created us to be in relationship with Him. He is a relational being, and so He created us to be in a relationship with Him. He created us in spite of knowing that we would fall into sin and he predetermined the means and the measures to which he would go to save us all before he ever created a thing. The gospel was not an afterthought. It was God's plan all along. I love something that Ed Dezago one time said. He said, it's not about getting back to the garden. Something else that might blow your mind. Scripturally speaking, we could make an argument that God's plan was not that mankind would sim- simply live in a perfect state in the garden. They might surprise you a little bit. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that God has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them we might become partakers of the divine nature. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve were fully human. They were perfect, but God walked separately in the garden. They had good fellowship with Him, hanging out with Him. We've got it much better. Why? Because God now lives within us because we have become part
partakers of the divine nature. We are his temple. That was God's plan all along. It wasn't just a perfect garden, which means that even the fall was part of God's plan. That doesn't make him accountable for sin. It's hard to get your head wrapped around that. But God's plan was that we might live for all eternity. We're told in Ephesians 1 that we might be blameless and holy. Why? Because we have become partakers of his nature. That was the plan all along. And as Ed DeZago would say, isn't that much better than the garden? God living within us for all eternity rather than just living alongside us? So, Genesis 1 and 2 becomes the basis for the gospel. God created us first and foremost in his mind before he ever breathed out Genesis 1-1 and put in plan this idea that he would ultimately indwell us in perfect union with himself. And that was something he did long before he ever created anything. But we begin to see the glimpses of that in Genesis 1 and 2. Why it was worth him to do what he did to save us. Amen?